This is the Douglas Robin Show. Welcome to the Den of Discussion. I'm your host, Douglas Robbins. Today, we have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Rick Cromie, who is the author of a new book, Gen Tech, an American story of technology change and who we really are. Rick, welcome today. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here, uh, Doug. Well, I'd like to just get right at it because you're a fascinating guy. You have a doctorate in emerging culture and leadership. What does that mean to you? And and what is it, you know, that you're trying to... uh, to spread. Yeah, it's actually a, a doctor of ministry. Most people, as far as the actual degree goes, it's a, I have a pastoral background and uh, most people are surprised to learn that uh, those of us with doctors of ministry have more education than a doctor of education or a doctor of, uh, you know, PhD and such. Uh, we have to have a, a three-year master divinity degree to even get accepted into a doctorate of ministry. So I've had a lot of post-postgraduate education. Uh, yeah. My my doctorate is in um, focused on what was what I like to call semiotics. Basically, I learned how to read the cultural signs. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a weather forecaster. Some people call me a futurist uh, because I I take um, take the trends, look at the patterns of the past, and then project them into the future where they're relevant. And it's it's been an, a fun ride for me, and I've enjoyed uh, the opportunities just to speak about. Uh, in my case, I do a lot of generational analysis and look at. Uh, how generations have, have formed and, and where they're going. So I saw in your bio and on your website, you know, a lot of people talk about millennials or Gen X or what, what generation are you? And I've <laughs> never really associated w- with that, but you look at it in a, in a very different matter, more of through the eyes of technology and how that affects generations. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this really comes from, from years and years and years of studying generations and, and becoming irritated. A lot of people ask me why I write a book, why anybody writes a book. But for me, I, I think every author writes a book because they're ticked off. And, and that's really where I was at with generation, uh, generational analysis. Uh, back in 1980, we had the first real strong tag attached to a generation. And, and that, that was when Boomer, the name Boomer was attached to the boom generation of between 1946 and 1964, those dates. And that really bothered me because I was born in 1963 and I've never felt like a boomer. You know, I've always felt out of step with that, but I didn't feel like a baby buster either. That's what they called us originally in the 80s was baby busters. And that didn't make any sense. Eventually, in 1991, uh, a fiction novel by Douglas Copeland called uh, called us Gen X. And that kind of stuck like napalm you know, on us. And, and from that point forward, we, we were called Gen X. Millennials, the same year, 1991, there was a book by uh, Strauss and Howe, William Strauss and Neil Howe, called Generations that came out. And it uh, proposed that this new generation born in the 80s into the 90s was the millennial generation. And that name stuck. The problem with Gen Z was they were still in diapers, 1995, 1996, some marketing firm out of New Zealand, if I recall correctly, um, you know, put this Gen Z name on basically a lazy label. That's what ticked me off was it, it had nothing to do with 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 the alphabet at all. And maybe there was a new generation emerging, but uh, the name I, I don't think you can name a generation until you get about 10 years in after the birth year and you can look back and see some things emerging. And that's where I was at. 
uh, I started to look through the lens of technology because my in my doctorate, I studied, uh, I, I started to uh, fix cultural shifting with major technological shifts. For example, the big, about every 500 years, we have a major shift culturally. And, you know, things like the, the, the um, printing press, Gutenberg press, the, the uh, microscope telescope uh, the, elect- the or the mechanical clock, those things shifted us previously. And now I was seeing things like television, the internet, um, cell phone, mobile technology shifting us again. And so all I did was I applied that to generations. And we can explore that deeper as, as you would like. But essentially, I don't see us as boomers. I see us as the space generation or the television generation, that generation. I don't see us as Gen Xers, but I see that generation as the cable television or or gamer, video gamer generation. I don't see millennials as millennials, but rather they're the cell phone or or the personal computer internet generation. And this new generation is not Gen Z. I call them the iTechs. Uh, short I, big T for the I technologies that they cut their teeth on. Things like the iPhone, the iPad, the iPod, I, iTunes, the streaming and social media technology that they grew up on. So Gentech is the story of America from 1900, because that's where most technological change. We've had more tech change since 1900 than the entire history of the world. Yeah. So since 1900, and it actually goes all the way out to 2055 because I projected that far with the latest generation born in 2010. Yeah, it really, now that you're really saying this, it makes more sense based upon a definition than some kind of lazy alphabet. Di- <laughs> alphabet. Yeah. So, yeah. We're, name- we're naming our generations like we named the coronavirus. You know, right. the coronavirus is just the, the Greek alphabet. You know, we have alpha, beta, delta, right. you know, gamma, delta, and then and then the Omicron. <laughs> you know, it's like, come right. on, we got to do better than that. Right. Yeah. That, that's interesting. Yeah, pretty lazy labels. <laughs> um, wanted to ask you, you coined the term or the phrase cultural language theory. What, what does that mean? Yeah, that, that comes back uh, again to how a culture interacts, how a culture speaks to itself. And again, it's rooted, I believe, in, in what I call the megatechs. There are certain mega technologies. There's always going to be technology happening, but there are certain megatechs that have the power to shift how we interact with one another. Uh, for example, the Gutenberg Press, literally, because of that, at that point, everything was done on scrolls and, and, and such. It was, it, it was pretty hard to mass produce information. But the Gutenberg Press allowed us to mass produce information, and that shifted us. The mechanical clock. We don't think about how much the clock shifted how we operated. But up until the mechanical clock, you know, when the sun went down, it was it was nighttime. It was time to go to bed. When the sun came up, it was time to go to work. And and we we had watch. They called them watches back then, or or uh, as such as far as how they kind of mark time. But the mechanical clock basically broke time down into chunks. You know, it broke it down into to hours and minutes and seconds eventually. And we became very addicted. Uh, we, we, we moved from being time savers to being time servers. In fact, we even talk that way. You know, it's seven o'clock. Really? See, we we talk by the by the technology. It's seven o'clock uh, in the in the pastoral world where I go to where I come out of as, as a church guy. It's interesting. People will say, well, I went to church yesterday uh, I, or, or, or I'm going to church. Well, see, that is from that mechanical clock vocabulary that's emerging because, you know, if you understand the word church, it's actually more of a people. 
it's a it's an assembly it's you know from a greek perspective it's a, it's a group of people who were called out so it's not a, it's not a place it's not a facility it's mm-hmm. a, it's a people and you know the church has misunderstood this for about 500 years and and such but i mean it's these these vocabularies and these this cultural language matters and what what's happened in the last 50 75 years is those three new technologies i've already mentioned the television moved us from being a an oral ear culture to an eye culture i mean when i when you think about uh, pearl harbor pearl harbor is a great example of this um we heard about pearl harbor first through the radio you know that's that's how they learned about it it was it was a radio announced event and and such we didn't have pictures photos of pearl harbor and the damage it had done until about three days later and the actual video of pearl harbor didn't appear for another 10 years Hmm. that's the difference now take a i'm just gonna i'm gonna just say for you and your listeners i'm just gonna give a date september 11th 2001 what do you see you know if you're if you're like me right now you can see a plane hitting a building in your mind sure you can see the fire. It's because at that point, we were now in a new world. We had moved from an oral culture, A-U-R-A-L, oral, to a, to a, a visual culture. Television did that, you know? It's, it's why the, the, racial, the, race, the racial issues in the 60s, I mean, until they started showing what was going on in the South through television, no change was enacted. Yep. Jim Crow South would have lasted forever if it hadn't been for television. You're absolutely right. The Vietnam War. You think about the Vietnam War. That was the first war that was televised. We saw it, and it, it shifted public opinion. Walter yeah. Cronkite goes over there, and he sees it. He comes back and says, "You know what? We got to make a peaceful end of this. We got to get out." Everybody says, "Absolutely." You know, it shifted. But that's also the fascinating thing. Now is there no event can go without a thousand people recording it. <laughs> that's the difference. Social media has fast-tracked or exploited or moved it even further. Uh, if you haven't noticed, and it's it's to me it's troubling, uh, we live in a culture now that when news happens, everybody flips open their phones and starts recording it. Nobody helps anymore. You know, somebody's getting beat up on the street and everybody flips their yeah. phones up to video and put it on social media, hope, hoping to be some sort of star, I guess. And and then, But meanwhile, the person's being hurt and beat up. And that's where our culture has actually devolved. In many ways, I think yeah. we're seeing a devolution, a devolution of, of our culture in, um, in how we, we interact with each other. And, and that can be attached to our social media and the rise of this thing called the smartphone. But it's, it's very curious because quite often like a beautiful sunset or car accident or whatever, a whale, <laughs> people are too busy with their phones and they're no longer in the present moment experiencing the event. Yeah, we've become a screen culture. You know, it is interesting um, to go to go, go to a concert uh, and and especially if you sit far back, it's nice. If you sit far back, you've got these big screens now where they show the person on stage and you can watch the watch the concert from afar and, and it, it, it draws you in. But what's interesting to me is, is you can be in the third row and people are still watching the screens. You know, uh, we've become such a screen culture. Yeah. We're so addicted, you know, everywhere we go, say we're in a lobby waiting room for something, there's probably five televisions on. And it's hard to not look because you have these lights flashing and the brain, you know, is drawn to it to analyze what is happening. Um, 
And it's such a distraction. I'm sure you've seen at the gas stations, even they have mm-hmm. things. It's like, look, I can just pump my gas without, you know, you pumping me with something. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and, and here's, here's the biggest problem is that in the rise of social media, and in particular, we, we, we now have multi-screens uh, going on, several screens going on at the yeah. several time. And what that's done is it's forced us into what I like to call our echo chambers. Um, our, our isms, whatever your ism is, liberalism, conservatism, whatever it is, there's, there's different isms out there, narcissism and agnosticism and, uh, religionism. Uh, you know, I, I've always said that a, a good acronym for ism, ISM is internal security mechanism, mm-hmm. because when you think about your, um, your isms, whatever it might be, that ism, when you feel threatened, when your worldview feels threatened, that ism goes it pops. It's internal. It's what you believe inside who you are. It's a security mechanism. And by mechanism, it means it can be triggered. And yeah. what happens is that when these things are triggered, you know, uh, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people from different sides of the aisle and from different perspectives. And, and that's what I do. That's a, I'm a cultural historian. And mm-hmm. so I study the narratives uh, that we have in the world today and the different people. And, you know, I'm not out to make judgments. I obviously have my own narratives that I believe. But in general, I find it interesting that when we do have a threat, we do retreat into our, our, our echo chambers and we tend to only listen to those voices that agree with us. And That's you see true. that, you know, you know what, whatever news you watch, whatever your media that you consume, you, you know. You retreat back to the tribe, to your ideology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I, I see a lot in the church world where I live. I mean, there people just retreat into their particular denominational tribe or into their particular uh, theological tribe. Yeah. And and then what we do is, is, if we're not careful with that, is we stop listening to other people. And well, instead, that's quite evident today. Yeah. And then what we do is we attack. And I think that's where social media has taken us is it's actually moved us into a point where we feel comfortable sitting back in our echo chamber and, and throwing throwing javelins or, or shooting arrows at one another. And we don't dialogue. I, I think that's quite prevalent uh, that people sit in sort of the safety of their homes and attack others online. Um, <laughs> but if you see like everyone is angry right now, right? And, and there's such, everyone's a villain. Every, on the other side, whomever, whatever side you're on, the other side's a villain. Uh, and there's such an, a sense of indignation. I kind of want to write a book called Indignation, as yeah, if like, yeah, that's yeah. the nation we live in. Um, because everyone is just going around angry and blaming everybody else. And that actually leads me to the next question, because you touch on, um, rec- people recognizing falsehoods. You, you have a, uh, a percentage of to- only 26% of people can recognize falsehoods. And I'm not sure if that's a falsehood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm curious because obviously misinformation is widespread in for various reasons. I uh, have bots running a lot of the social media, spreading all sorts of information or, or lack of information to distract and divide. Um, they, I had read something a few years ago that they had interviewed a, a group of elderly folks um, regarding this subject of misinformation, mm-hmm. and they could not identify the difference between something read, say, in the New York Times or something read Bob's, uh, you yeah. know, basement.com, you know, like, 
they're because they're viewed online as the same. You can have a beautiful website, you can present the content nicely, mm-hmm. and it's very hard for the brain to decipher unless you really are critical and really trying to decipher through what you're really seeing or reading. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this is, this is really a, a hard one for us as a culture, because I, I think um, we Americans in particular, we like to pride ourselves and, and just knowing stuff, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and being in the know, um, you know, Renaissance men and women and, you know, enlightened or whatever, you know, even today that word, you know, the word woke is, is, thrown about out there you know um i i find it interesting that uh you know what really is true i mean that's that's the great philosophical question of our age is what is really true um two plus two is still four and that's 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 correct there there are certain mathematical things there are certain things that when we look you know biologically or when we look naturally that we conclude are are absolute but you know, it is interesting to me that what we have today, in, in many ways, historians are saying we have never been more divided as a country politically yeah. since than since the Civil War. But if you look what happened in the Civil War, um, you had a North. It was a geographical divide and it was politically over the issue of slavery uh, and states rights versus federalism. Those type of things were all emerging. But they, it created a, a huge echo chamber back then. But it was print technology. Yeah. You know, it was it was preachers in the south, preachers in the north, you know, that, that were giving the uh, giving the word. And there was a general trust of your your narrative was defined by you know what you were reading and what you were hearing. And so, you know, that's no different than today. But what's happened is, is that we've got so many different things flying at us that, again, we retreat into those places that we find comfort and security in them. And what is really true? You know, it, it is we're, we're finding, for example, in the coronavirus, that things that were put out early on mm-hmm. just simply weren't true or inaccurate. Yeah. Or, ina- or inaccurate. Yeah. And and that's OK. I mean, this is the thing about science. If you understand science, it's constantly shifting as new data comes in. You know, uh, we don't we, we trust the data that we have, but we're always looking for for more data to confirm the thesis and that's the problem with a lot of this stuff. When, when people say something is scientific today, you know, that means that we're doing this, you're using the scientific process. But a lot of people have concluded also that because it's scientific, therefore it's true. That doesn't necessarily mean the same thing. You can be scientifically going through it and, and working a theory and it may prove that theory wrong, you know, in the end. So I'm, I'm of the opinion that we, we just need to have more, um, more dialogue, more, more processing uh, a more openness. Um, I, I find today that the, the people who claim to be the most open and tolerant tend to be the most intolerant, really. Uh, I've experienced that a bit myself. Yeah. 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 Uh, and, and, and I, I just, um, and I can, I can admit, I'll, I'll be, I'll be the first one to say that if I wasn't careful with my own thinking, I could easily go one way or the other, you yeah. know, and, and become closed minded. And maybe there's certain things, two plus two equal four. I mean, that's a closed-minded statement, right? You know? Well, there are absolute truths and there are relative truths. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think math in that regard is, yeah. is kind of infallible. Um, but, you know, there is such hostility uh, for facts. 
that if it doesn't fit into your narrative, they're going to disagree or will try to whitewash it. I mean, and that's what's going on, I think, a lot with a lot of Southern states with kind of wanting to whitewash history a bit and or mm-hmm. book burn. We're back to book burning in the year 2022 uh, or book banning. Yeah. Uh, and the truth of the matter is like information allows you to make the right decisions yeah allows you to understand the broader spectrum of the past or or or, or current you know events and if you're blinded because your father or whomever was scared of you knowing about slavery or civil rights issues well you're going into the world ignorantly Mm -hmm. Uh, you're going into the world probably with a skewed sense of your own identity uh and that's a really dangerous place yeah. to create yeah well probably the most uh, slavery is definitely one of those good examples but let's get relevant i mean right now what's happening is the roe v wade thing going on you know and literally there are there are people marching on justices homes and yeah. and such uh and and here's the thing i always i always like to point out you know we we don't teach american history anymore uh, we teach a brand of American history, but we don't teach American history. We definitely don't teach much government. Uh, I, I um, if you understand our government, how American the, the American system was created, uh, look at the Constitution and the judicial branch has the least amount of space uh, attached to it. The 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 um, legislative branch has most of the work in the constitution the executive branch has the next amount of work judicial branch has just a little bit the judicial branch was only there to check the other two branches from getting out of control and their only their only function was to offer opinions and you still hear this today this is the opinion of the court it is a i I think i'll use the word misinformation or disinformation whatever you choose there but i think when people say for example in 1970 73 that abortion was legalized that's a little bit of a misinformation. Basically, the Roe v. Wade, uh, it was an opinion. It was a decision by that particular court. And what was going on at that point was these different states were starting to basically um, execute abortion laws, uh, either for or against abortion. California, for example, in 1973, I th- well, I think it goes all the way back to 69. It might be as late as six, 69 or as early as 69. Uh, California was already putting places in in um in where you could legally get an abortion in california which was totally out of step with the rest of america at that point but california was leading that leading that charge of having free access to abortion mm-hmm. and in fact there was this this um this i was called the pineapple express or the orange express or something like that it was a particular airplane that flew to california just to take pregnant women there to get an abortion mm-hmm. well texas comes along Texas comes along and they say, no, 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 no. We don't want to have free access to abortion in here. And so what they did was they made it illegal to have an abortion in the state of Texas. That's what Roe v. Wade was all about, whether or not you could have a legal abortion or not. And and so it was an opinion of that court at that time that the woman had, you know, certain rights to her body. And, you know, the science of the time, basically, when it looked at the at a fetus, it did not have the science that we have today. We have more data today uh, when it comes to prenatal life. I mean, it's, it's one of the reasons why a lot of uh, a lot of states have enacted what we call heartbeat laws. It's because by six weeks, there's a heartbeat which suggests a human body or a human person is growing inside the womb. Mm-hmm. And what do you do with that? 
I mean, there, there are certain individuals that, that want to destroy life, even up to birth. Okay. Well, you can see why that would upset the pro-life bunch, yeah. you know? On the other hand, there are people who say, keep your hands off my body. This yeah. is my right to choose. This is, you know, it's, it's, it's who I am. And the bottom line is this is if Roe v. Wade, if, if, if the, if the current SCOTUS comes back and says Roe v. Wade was just bad law, it doesn't change anything. Places like California, Oregon, Washington, you know, they're still going to have abortion available for people. Yeah. Um, places I live in Idaho and I, and then Idaho, I got to tell you, there's already laws, trigger laws. They're called trigger laws that once Roe v. Wade is changed and it allows states to then choose how they want to deal with abortion. You know, it's going to be outlawed in this state, which is the wish of the people of the state of Idaho. You may not agree with that, but you don't live in Idaho. People in Idaho want that. And because it's a pro-life state. So that's that's really when people say, well, if Roe v. Wade gets overturned that it's going to outlaw abortion nationally. It's not. You'd have to have an amendment to the Constitution, people. The only way that abortion, just like slavery, slavery could not be outlawed simply by going back. To, it took a constitutional amendment where all the states agreed that we need to change and not allow slavery in, in America. That's what changed. Now, if there's a constitutional amendment that comes out that says life begins at birth. There you go. Now, now it becomes back to we the people. In the end, we the people should decide on this issue and let the states decide. That's that's the big question today uh, on this issue. So yeah. there you go. That kind of unpacks that um, as far as why we have the it's it's not a you know, for some it's a philosophical thing, some it's theological, for some it's biological, for some it's just, you know, I want to live my life. Okay, that's fine. But well, it's such a curious thing because you point out, like, right, it always starts with the opinion of the court. It it's is like, opinion. Well, opinion. We're going to ignore it. Like, you know, like. And they did. Everyone's got one. They did. I got to tell you, the opinion of the court. Most people don't realize that this, again, is where American history is fascinating to me. The Dred Scott decision, 1857, that basically said a black man had no rights in America, that he could be a slave. It was it was a terrible judicial opinion. And it was ignored by Abraham Lincoln. Mm -hmm. Abraham Lincoln, the whole thing, he, he ignored the Dred Scott decision from day one. And those opinions, Andrew Jackson, the opinion of the Supreme Court of his time said that the Indians should not be removed from the southern states. To move the Indians on the Great Trail of Tears, which was one of Jackson's big things that he got through, you know, um, it, it, the SCOTUS of that of that era said no, 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 no. It's wrong to move people, native peoples, from their native lands. But it didn't matter. He moved them anyway. He ignored the SCOTUS decision, and that's a, that's what's testing right now. Uh, we've uh, basically have had forty years, fifty years, where this decision has been, you know, kind of almost deified as if it's some sort of law. It's not law. There's been no legislation to federalize abortion mm -hmm. it would never pass the only way to do it would be a constitutional amendment yeah and i know they've discussed that a little bit but mm -hmm. um but that's so fast i mean the only thing let's say for instance with, with roe v Wade, yeah, it gets overturned and is ignored by the federal government by joe biden and, and the government obviously lawsuits will start people will start filing lawsuits against whomever but Ultimately, I mean, how do you enforce it? Because it is just an opinion. Yeah. Well, and that again, what it does is it sends it back to the states. All if if 
I don't look at it as Roe v. Wade being overturned. I look at more as another court has looked at this and they have decided that, you know, and realize that the court in 1973 leaned to the left. Keep that in mind. It was a left-leaning court. It was it was already making decisions that people on the right did not agree with. So mm-hmm. the fact that it, it 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 had this opinion of abortion is not surprising. It's yeah. also not surprising based upon who's on the court now, which leans to the right, that we would start having more right opinion decisions. Yeah. But all this does, people, is it sends it back to the states where the states then can, can then decide, which is where it should have been in the first place. Many would uh, would argue. Um, uh, that that and, and again, if we want a federal, if we want this to be a universal decision, one way or the other, if we want to make it federally open, uh, abortion federally legalized, it has to be a law that comes out of the legislature. You know, the executive branch has to put their stamp on it. And and then at that point, it goes up through the SCOTUS and the SCOTUS can decide whether or not that was bad law or good law based upon whatever it is. But so, the only other way to do it, a constitutional amendment one way or the other is the only way to resolve this. I think um, to, to, and I, I, I tell you, I don't think a constitutional amendment to legalize abortion would pass. Um, right. Sure. Yeah. Right. I, I don't think it would. Um, I'm not sure that uh, you got to have two thirds of the States agree uh, on a, on a constitutional amendment. And I'm not sure you can get two thirds of the States to agree on a pro-life um, opinion yeah. of that. So, yeah, but, let That's America. <laughs> yes, yes. It's a cauldron for sure. Um, so let me ask you there, uh, uh, Rick. So social media obviously can can be very positive. It can inform us. It can bring a lot, uh, bring people together. Obviously, we saw that in the Middle East with um, um, the uh, what they call Arabic summer and uh, Arab Spring. Vast yeah. change took place. So it really has the ability to do that, uh, to bring information to people. Obviously, right now, Russia bombing Ukraine. Um, what do they call it? The um, Not the Iron Curtain, but the, the digital curtain that mm-hmm. Russia has been trying to block mm-hmm. information by getting out or in. Uh, and that's not working because people are able to circumnavigate that with VPNs and whatnot. Um, and by doing this, they can provide each other information. Yeah. So when you yeah, have, yeah. you know, a, 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 a state-run news agency, which is really just a, a talking heads for, for, you know, the oligarchs and for Putin, that really obviously can undermine that power and that power struggle that used to be so easily maintained mm-hmm. because people didn't know any better. They just go, okay, America's evil. I get it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, or whatever it might be that Ukraines are all Nazi drug drug druggies, you know. Um, but they see now for themselves. So, but it seems like there's no governor on on it, right? It's just just <laughs> anything goes. You can see a cat video to someone's head getting cho- chopped off. You know, like where do you say what can help us improve in these directions in the next generation, if you will? Will it improve? You know, I saw something that Elon Musk was stepping back perhaps from buying Twitter saying how many of these accounts are false are you know are bot accounts basically uh and that's a problem right you get emails all the time oh look at your your your, um your account has been compromised click on this so there's an obvious inundation with 
with this yeah. with bots and misinformation. So where do you think we go? Do we regulate the internet? Where do we go from here to kind of improve things? Yeah, I think regulating the internet is going to be a very difficult thing to do. Um, it's, it's, it was designed initially designed to be open source, open, open, uh, um, availability and, and, and access and all that. And, and certainly there's, there's, there's the dark web part of it too, that, that we have to, uh, entertain and, and, and certainly social media, um, can often, we, we often see the, the, the negative sides of it, the, the addictive side, more than anything, I see the addictive side of social media, uh, psychologically, I get caught up in that from time to time. Sure. You know, I, I writers, it, Facebook and Twitter and, and these places, they're terrible for those of us who are addicted to applause, you know, uh, and writers, writers are notoriously addicted to applause because we write something that we ourselves think is very clever and we post it and, you know, it, nothing, nothing happens. Now it may be so profound that people are reading it going, wow, that's deep. You know, <laughs> they don't, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know whether to like it or not like it. Or, or uh, I, I wish we had question marks, those type of things, right, but right. they're just like, I don't know. But, uh, you know, and then I always laugh because you can put a picture of a dog or a cat up there and, and you get 20 responses. Yeah. And you get 20 responses to that, or, or I have a friend, you know, friends who uh, post what they're eating for supper and, you know, they get a hundred likes and three shares. I, I you know, I, it doesn't, I, doesn't, I don't understand that. It, it, it really takes me back to high school. Because you know, it's the- neutral. It's cute. I mean, that's what I was yeah. watching the other day. Something about if you want to have whatever program on Crowdfunder or Kickstarter or whatever, yeah. put pictures of you and your dog. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and, and again, for those of us who think a little bit deeper about life, you know, it, it can be a, a little troubling. I mean, Twitter thankfully expanded how many letters you could put out for a tweet here several years ago. That that was a nice little gesture. But, you know, Facebook, when I post on Facebook, people know that I'm not going to post, uh, you know, something that's going to be three or four sentences. I, I tend to post longer posts. And some of my longest posts tend to be the ones that are shared the most, I find, um, because people just you know, I, you can't write substance without having some link to it, you know, and, and such. And and for me, it's about writing something that is substantially significant and uh, influential, helpful, if you will. Um, but can you regulate the internet? Can you, what, what's this all mean? I, I think there is a, a devolution here, a race to the bottom for the superficiality, the flotsam and jetsam of life, if you will, that just floats along the top. And there's a lot of people who, who prefer that when it comes to their social media and they scroll, you see, you know, you watch people, they just scroll, 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 almost like they're looking for a date, you know, just, they scroll right through swipe left, swipe right, whatever it might be. Um, I'm the type of person that likes to to go deeper than that. And I think there are a lot of people like that too. Maybe a lot of your audience would be that way. Well, I think social media, what I find and what I've even done when I'm scrolling and I've been trying to not be on it much lately um, is I think we're looking for ourselves. We are looking for that mm-hmm. connection. And often people are lonely. They're isolated. Um, they don't have an interconnected kind of group that they, that, they spend time with. Uh, so on a psychological level, uh, people are looking to connect. And so as we were speaking about earlier, what are you going to connect with, but your own beliefs? Mm-hmm. That's why I think QAnon has become so prevalent and 
these crazy conspiracy conspiracies. And this is why misinformation has been able to spread because it just feeds that sort of virus of the mind, if you will. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for them to try to govern uh, or at least regulate misinformation, especially yeah. from political leaders who are deliberately spreading misinformation. I think that's a, that's a, a you're not upholding your oath uh, if that's what you are doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, today we're recording on Friday the 13th. I know. And I was I was at my pharmacy getting picking up a prescription this morning and and she mentioned it was thir the 13th day of May and I said, "Yeah, Friday the 13th." And you would have thought I shot her or something. <gasps> you know, she was so afraid. Oh, I you know, like I'm going that's the problem right there. How do we respond? And a lot of us there there, there are a lot of Americans today that when they hear something that again attacks their worldview or against their ideology, or against their religion, whatever it might be, immediately, it's, it's not, it's not uh, well, let me try to understand this a little bit more. It's fear. Yep. Fear. Um, when, you, when you're afraid, you attack. Yeah, yeah. And, and this, this whole idea of being, uh, you know, um, I, I, think it's, I think it's fascinating. I've, I've got many friends on the right, for example, that have their opinions about homosexuality, for example. And on the left, they immediately uh, label them as homophobic. And I'm going, no, I know these people. Yeah, they're not. They're, they don't fear homosexuality. They 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 actually uh, they just understand it from a different perspective. They're, they look at it more from a, in their case, a biblical perspective, which they see prohibitions on it. They they just see it differently. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I look at the the ho the homosexual uh, or the the LGBTQ plus community, and I see a lot of heterophobia over there. You know where, where there, there's some fear of, of heterosexuality. And it's like, you know, on one hand, you can throw the arrow, but you can't take the arrow when it comes back to you. You know, I, I think we got to be careful. Fear is not that fear will never get us anywhere. You know, for me, it's always been about faith. It's faith in my, in myself, faith in my, in my, uh, in my God, faith in my, in, in the people around me. You know, when you live by a faith, you know, fear doesn't have any space. You know, Right. You have to be confident enough to ask questions mm -hmm. and fear doesn't allow that. No. no, fear only allows you to attack and retreat simultaneously. Uh, but if people ask more questions and just try to understand yeah. a little bit more, like if you're sincere about understanding and not saying, well, I hate you because you're whatever. Um, obviously, that's there's nowhere to go mm -hmm. if you're not willing to, to open um you know, one's eyes to that, but, um, yeah, it's, it's troubling. Well, that's why I think I love your, your podcast den of discussion. I mean, it, it's about getting inside, getting down in this case, maybe I look at den as a cave, you know, sometimes we got to get away from the world get into the cave and let's, let's go mano a mano here and talk about these things. Because yeah. I got to tell you, I have, I have friends who I vehemently disagree with. Yeah. vehemently politically theologically philosophically you name it we just have great disagreement but i always lead with love and respect and yeah. honor i you know i don't have to agree with you to honor you i don't have to agree with you to respect you i don't have to agree with your with your position in order to love you and that's where i go you know i, I find a deeper ethic for myself but you know rick and obviously you've done the work with yourself as well True, true. And that's where it starts, because if you have unexamined sort of triggers, as we were discussing earlier, 
and someone hits that trigger button, you lash out. There's yeah. no time for thinking. It's you hit my pain, I attack you now. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I look at insecurity. I, I you know, the ISM, what is your ism? You know, is it it's an internal security mechanism. Once you recognize that that internal security mechanism can become a trigger and yeah. it's gonna trigger, I get triggered all the time. Douglas, I get, I get triggered all the time, but what I've learned is self-control, <laughs> you know, just because I, I get triggered doesn't mean I have to act on that trigger. Yeah. I mean, I was triggered this morning, you know, just about half a dozen things came at me once that were very stressful, people manipulative. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't really want to deal with them. And, you know, I've learned some tools on how to break that up, how to quiet that trigger or have it not last as long or be as explosive as it once yeah. was yeah um rick anything in closing uh i mean you can find rick Cromie at rickchromey.com that's r-i-c-k-c-h-r-o-m-e-y.com he's a speaker uh he's a pastor he's an author he's a general uh, general good guy <laughs> <laughs> i hope so i hope so just general yeah i'm a general good guy not a, not a lieutenant yet so <laughs> <laughs> Above that, general's above a lieutenant. For yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yes, I I do. Uh, if if you um, if you come to my website, you're going to find that there's that uh, there's three things that I do for people. I help you interpret history. I help you navigate culture, and I help you explore faith. If those are your choices, then I'm I'm kind of the guy for you. I do do workshops. I I do keynotes. I I speak all over the world, really. Mm -hmm. and, and although COVID's kind of killed that a little bit here in recent years, um, but. Uh, uh, one of my new gigs, I'm working on a, on a cruise line, working the Columbia River all the way up to uh, Clarkston, Washington, talking about Lewis and Clark. That's a great new gig. Yeah, just uh, riding, a, riding a boat for eight days. That's my new gig. So, Oh, my goodness. I would love to. I used to, used to live out in Washington, love it out there. Yeah. Place. Idaho is beautiful as well. Yeah. That, would, that sounds magical to me. Yeah, you got to come along. Come along. I, I won't name the cruise line, but uh, you can find us out there. We're pretty easy. There's only... Only a few of us. I have another question, if you don't yeah. mind. Yeah. You have another minute? Oh, I have plenty of time. The country. Let's talk about the country just on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. You have dark money and all sorts of unchecked money going into politics now. Um, not that it wasn't really always before, but it's basically no one's hiding it anymore. We'll leave it at that. Um, it seems like we're self-imploding in, in many ways. And, and the social media is probably aggravating that. And who we are as a culture seems to be collapsing to, to some degree with, within that. There's a lot of, you could say on both sides, a lot of noise mm -hmm. um, and not a lot of leadership. You, you mentioned Walter Cronkite before. This guy was was beloved by the nation. People trust trusted, it. trusted, yeah, trusted. There's so much. First of all, there's too much to choose from nowadays. It used to be three channels or four channels. Now there's literally thousands of channels that you know uh, blow your mind up. But with the amount of them, then you have the social media feeds. There's just too much, uh, like drinking from the, the fire hose, if you will. Um, and then you have. Uh, so I was going to, and then you have, so that now you have Ukraine and Ukraine is sort of acting in a way that we claim to be 
right? Freedom and, and independence and, you know, uh, you know, freedom of choice and, and all this kind of things, uh, freedom of speech, uh, sovereign nation. Mm -hmm. And so I think Ukraine has kind of woken a number of us up to going, oh, yeah, that's who we are. That's who mm -hmm. we identify ourselves to be. I don't know if it's enough to write the ship, but where would you say you speak about how to interpret history and culture? Yeah. Where would you say we are in this spectrum? Because I think we really have been losing our way and greed has a way of eroding all ideals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. And this is a question. Yeah, this, yeah, this is a, this is a difficult question because you're asking me something very personal, you know, as far as how I even view the world and, and view our country and such. Uh, and, and so when it comes to interpreting history, I, I believe we need to stick to just what we know, you know, um, what, what are the facts? You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, during COVID, I took some time. And I thought, you know what? I want to study American history. I haven't done that in a while. I thought it'd be fun to do that. But, you know, the problem is, is that if you read a book on George Washington today, you get a real skewed view of George Washington, a view that if you start going back in time and looking at books about George Washington, you start to find that before 1930, George Washington was was considered the hero of the of the United States. Yeah, he was he was considered somebody that was untouchable. You did not criticize him. In fact, Thomas Paine did criticize George Washington and was was excommunicated for it. I mean, he he was literally shut down. Yeah. Uh, you you could take right. on any you could take on anybody, but don't take on George Washington. Yeah. But you know now we're to the point where we're tearing down statues of George Washington, mm. and so for me, I, I really believe that, um, and this is more of a historical commitment. Every every historian, historian, every theologian, every every philosopher, we have to make certain commitments. For me, my commitment is this: is that the earlier, the closer you are to the actual person as a historian, the more likely I should be to believe you. Yeah. Okay. And so when I look at George Washington, I don't read some of the, a lot of the stuff that we have today. I, I just stay away from it. I read instead Jared Sparks. Jared Sparks was, he came along in the 1830s and he was the preeminent historian of, of the, the 19th century. And he wrote, uh, what was it? 18, 20 volumes. He went out and compiled all of George Washington's writings and such. And every every piece of communication, he interviewed, uh, you know, family members about him. Um, I get the impression that Jared Sparks did not know George Washington personally, but he knew his family personally. By the end, he lived at uh, Mount Vernon and 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 stayed there for a while and and spent time going pouring through all Washington's papers. Mm -hmm. Bottom line is that when it comes to interpreting history, I think it's more faithful to to finding the truth is if we go further back and we read the historians of a previous generation, previous generations, generations, you know, uh, rather than, you know, reading the latest hot novel or hot, uh, nonfiction, um, Tomei that's out there, uh, on the, on the bestseller list. Um, yeah, it's just, you gotta be more critical in how we think about history. Well, you know, it's curious because Washington now gets vilified because he did have slaves. Uh, and yeah, let me talk. Let's let me answer that one. Yes, he had slaves. He was a Virginian. In Virginia, it was illegal to release your slaves. 
Washington had slaves because he inherited them from his family. He also got more slaves when he married his wife, Martha. Martha's family had slaves. And so slaves, but, but Washington, there are testimonies of a number of slaves that were in George Washington's stead that were very, they, they said he was the best master they ever had. Uh, he took care of them uh, because he couldn't release them. If he released them, they, they often got stolen and taken to the further south. Uh, if you ever read the book Twelve Years a Slave, that's the story there. A free, a free black man in the North is actually captured and taken to the South as a slave. It happened all the time, and Washington decided to expend. He literally spent his fortune taking care of his slaves their entire life, and then at his death, he legally released them because he could no longer take care of them, you know, financially. But but he he recognized, and Thomas Jefferson is the same way. Thomas Jefferson was a Virginia, had some of the same same things. This whole Sally Hemings thing that they, he fathered somebody, fathered a child through Sally, that is hugely disputed in the deeper research. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the popular cultural story, we've now accepted that, oh, Thomas Jefferson had, had a child through Sally Hemings. That is absolutely uh, a, a piece of, of di- great dispute within the, the historical narrative on, on Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it's not as clear-cut as we'd like to think it is. You know, one last thing, you know, uh, about GW and and people, again, to kind of tie this back to the Ukraine or current situation is people don't realize how close this country was to going back to a tyranny, to a monarchy, Mm -hmm. when generals, you know, there was no money to pay uh, um, the soldiers and generals said to Washington, why don't you just become the king? And I said, that's not what we're fighting for. Yeah. Yeah. No, even, even after the revolution, even after the revolution, George Washington, they wanted to make him king. Mm -hmm. And he said, we already had King George. Yeah. We don't need another one. Right. (laughs) And so if he said, yes, there would have been a coup and that would have been, America would never have come to pass. So it's so important for us to remember the struggles, the battles, civil rights, American, you know, revolution, et cetera to get where we are now, because it's very easy to forget. And that's why whitewashing history uh, or disconnecting from it is very dangerous. Uh, history will repeat itself, right? Yeah. And, and again, we I, I always like, look at the word president. It means to preside. Mm-hmm. That's what a president was for. That's what George Washington said. I preside over Congress. You know, yeah. my job is to preside. Uh, today, we have made kings out of our presidents. Yeah. And we've made them into royals. Mm-hmm. We treat our we treat our presidents and their families like royals in America. Uh, celebrities are our aristocracy for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Crummy, it's been such a pleasure, man. Hey, this has been fun, Doug. Enjoyed it. You can find Rick Crummy at rickcrummy.com. sir. You have a great day. You bet. Thank you very much. Thank you. Be well. Thank you for listening to The Douglas Robbins Show. To find out more about Douglas and his books, check out douglasrobbinsauthor.com.